the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley, and with me is the professor, Alan Jameson. Hello, mate. Hello. You're coping with the heat for the sake of sound quality. I am. And we, we salute you, sir. We salute you. I know. At least I'm not in a cupboard anymore. I'm actually in an office, but I've had to switch the aircon off because you complain. I, I said I could do it. We could do it in post. No, I know, but you, you'll say that now until you have to do it, and then you'll be like, oh, you had your aircon on. It'll be like James Cameron <laughs> clicking his pen all over again. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think he'd know. I know. Maybe it was all just a power play. Maybe he knew it'd mess with us. For a guy who spends his days on a film set, you'd think you'd know to stop clicking a pen. Or he's like, oh no, what, what if it was code? What if he was asking for help and we just ignored him? Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe that's it. I'm here under duress. <laughs> Send help. <laughs> they won't let me stop making the film. I'm so tired. I want to make a different film. <laughs> yeah, we should have that analyzed for Morse code. Okay. It might be revealed. Or he's just being horrible to us. These two idiots somehow dragged me on here. Yeah, somebody kill me. His film's doing all right. Is it? Overtaken his last film. What, what film's that? <laughs> Avatar 2, The Way of Water. Oh, right. Has overtaken Titanic as the highest grossing film of all time. Isn't that because there's more people in the world than there is back then? Is the percent still the same? Let's be scientific about this, because you, you, people will see they outsell the Beatles, but the population of the UK has doubled since the Beatles, so if it, it could be a percentage thing. Oh, we'll have to look at the stats. Yeah. We'll have to model it. But, I mean, it, it's past it, Avengers, which falls in between. Oh, really? Oh, well. There you go. It must be a good film then. Yeah. Have you seen it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Nor have I. <laughs> I really want to. I really want to. I just, I, I haven't been to the cinema in over three years. And that, that sort of correlates with the appearance of a, a small person that needs constant monitoring. So I haven't actually seen a film in the cinema since he arrived. I heard it was more than 25 minutes long, so there's no way I can stay awake in a cinema for that film, so... You live at such a permanent state of exhaustion that yeah. as soon as you're in a dark room. Yeah, pretty much. Put the lights off, boof, out. <laughs> like a parrot. Just put a cloth over your cage and you're out. The 25 minutes is the time it takes to eat the popcorn. And once once, once the jaws stopped crunching, it's just like there's nothing else to do. So just boof, out. Standby mode. Yeah. I can remember both of my parents falling asleep in Space Jam and then feeling like, oh, I'm a bit unsupervised. Oh, you should have liked it. <laughs> It did cut some It's just like, I can enjoy the film. Also, I'm unsupervised. Or you could have just moved to the seat behind them and then watched their faces when they wake up and realise you're not oh, there. Oh, no. And sit there with your popcorn saying, this is better than the film. <laughs> um, how are you doing? What's going on? Uh, lots going on. Advertising lots of jobs to come and work for me. Right. If anybody wants a job, just just give us a call. I'll give you a job. Careful what you say. There's, heap, there's, there's heaps of jobs going. No, there's, there's, there's buckets of jobs. Buckets of jobs. I think we're advertising about nine at the moment. Maybe some more coming. Right. Big expansion. Are they all up on one page? Like, we will put them in the show notes. We do have a lot of people who listen, and plenty of people get in touch. Yeah, there's three deep sea biology postdocs on the go, and there's a couple of deep sea data analysts, a senior research officer, and so on and so on. So we're just looking for good people. We're not looking for people who are particular skill because because we, we've basically got the ship for the next five years sub we can go do whatever we want to do so we're looking for people who can look into the types of stuff we do and look at the limitations of what we can and can't achieve and think about how they can contribute to that and enhance it sounds like a fantastic opportunity go on listeners there's jobs to be had a lot of people email how to get into deep sea well this this is probably it well the best way to get into deep sea is jump off a ship is that our new t-shirt? Yeah. Or is that going to be the stock answer when somebody quite honestly asks us, you know, asks us nicely for career advice and we just tell them to jump in? Yeah, pick up a section of railway line and jump off the ship. You'll be in the deep sea in no time. <laughs> we could probably calculate how quickly you'll be in the deep sea. I reckon 50 metres a minute, a half an hour. That's a good, it seems to be like terminal velocity, doesn't it? Half, half an hour, a thousand metres is normally the thing, isn't it? So it depends. If, it depends, we can argue about when the deep sea starts again. <laughs> Real deep sea was going to take half an hour. Proper deep sea, yeah. not this poser deep sea. Yeah. Proper deep sea. Yeah. 
Good stuff. And you you had a song of the month that you alluded to yeah. that has a story. Yeah, it's a song of the month and it's dedicated to a woman I never met. So I was sent a photograph of a young Canadian woman wearing a Deep Sea Podcast hoodie. Oh, yeah. And it was sent to me by none other than our mate Shane. Remember the guy I tattooed? <laughs> yes. His good lady is called Michelle. She's a big fan of the show. So I'm trying to think of songs from Michelle in the title. I can only think of Guns N' Roses, My Michelle. So it's a dedication to all of the Michelles, but particularly that Michelle, because you're a legend and you let me tattoo your husband. And apparently it was her idea. <laughs> so it's not her. And has forgiven you. Yeah, she not only should forgiven us, she bought a hoodie. So she's given us like $2 or whatever much we charge for these things. I don't know, I measure it all in pints now. It's actually an easier exchange rate than working out Aussie dollars and UK pounds. All the company accounts are in pints now. But if you're referring to currency in pints, shouldn't we just come up with a new one like Pinto? <laughs> I know, cryptocurrency, Pinto. Yeah, so the hoodies are probably about four pintos. It's quite catchy. Cool. Some newsy bits then. What's been going on? Are we calling the section newsy bits now? Well, I always try and avoid saying deep sea news because there's there's quite a famous blog called that, so I didn't want to tread on that too much. All right, newsy bits it is. Newsy bits is fine. <laughs> newsy bits brackets deep sea edition. Yeah. So actually, the first one is you. Oh, you, you've got some new records. Yeah, I wrote a paper with the uh, guys from Japan. Uh, we had a few significant depth extensions of various fauna, which we thought were quite interesting. So we put a short note in just to get them on the record. And first one is the deepest jellyfish of all time. It's the first time we've seen a jellyfish deeper than 6,000 metres. And that was on the dive that I interviewed Tim McDonald for this very podcast. That was that interview, I think, was just after we saw the deepest jellyfish in the world. The other one was the, you know, those predatory tunicates, the like big transparent zippy mouths, if anyone yeah. in Britain remembers the TV show Rainbow. So like a big gummy mouth uh, that stick to rocks. Uh, we saw one of them a couple of months ago in Japan at over 8,000 metres. The previous deep one we saw a couple of years ago in the Mariana. So that's a, I think that's a, another several thousand metre depth extension. And the last one was tinafores or comb jellies. There was a comb jelly around 10,000 metres in Kermadec. And in Japan, we saw the benthic tinafores at around 8,000 metres. So we, They're like stalked, aren't they? They sort of stick and then have their tentacles. No, there's two sort of tentacles that come down, but the benthic tinafores actually join on the other end. So their tentacles actually sort of flow away from the bit that's attached oh, okay. you can see that Dougal does the morphological description of these things the big blobby bit at the end that sticks to the rock is I don't know it's head and the rest of it sort of <laughs> flails behind it in the current so it's just very simple I like those simple papers well, just, it is what it is well the point is when you get down deep density is obviously not necessarily low but it's low relative to how much you can see and how much you can sample on a given day so these rare observations are actually quite useful and after you've done so many land deployments so many sub deployments it's nice to sort of pull all these singletons we call them or rarities and put them together and then when you start looking at my god these things are actually getting down to 10,000 meters you think well the biogeography of these things is likely huge it's just that you don't come across them very often it's not because they're rare it's because they don't necessarily appear in something when you've only got a field of view of a few meters so it comes with time. And then we're just trying to get them on the record just to show that the most major marine tanks are present down in very deep depth. And these ones weren't logged before. We've been quite limited by our gear as well. We've not had equipment that sort of allows the survey of these groups. These aren't easily seen. Yeah, for some of those, the ideal way to do it would be put a long-term lander or mooring down with a camera almost continuously recording or triggered by motion sensors or something like that. But nobody has that kind of money kicking around. And, you know, in an ideal world, you would put 10 in every trench and then just... Just mm. watch things drift by. 
by the camera. Uh, but unfortunately, the logistics and reality of doing that is very hard. So I was quite chuffed with that little paper. I thought it was quite cool. Nice one. That'll be in the show notes. See some new records. And not just little little bumps in the numbers, like multiple thousands of meters deeper than we've seen them before. Another one I spotted was the latitudinal gradient of deep sea invasions by marine fishes, which is a nice way of saying something we've talked about before, how a lot of deep sea colonization seems to happen in the poles. So by being cold adapted, you seem to find it a little bit easier to go deep. And that seems to be where we get a lot of our deep sea fauna is at the poles. And it's true for the fishes and the vertebrates and the um, and the invertebrates as well. So this is a physiological thing, probably. If you're good at being cold, that means you're good at being deep as well, or it's easier to go deep. So that means Norwegian people can swim deeper than people from Hawaii. Yes. Great. Absolutely. Got to clarify that then. Although that contradicts the the like Mediterranean warm all the way down, allowing shallow species to go deeper. I know, yeah. that's, what, that's it. I thought the whole point was if you were warm, you can go deeper. I think one is sort of evolutionary and one is physiological. So I think warm all the way down makes it easier for things that aren't adapted to go deeper. Whereas if you have evolved in a cold place and adapted to that, you are able to go deeper easier. But it's it's you that's different, not the environment. Whereas when in warm spots, shallow animals seem to go deeper. That's the environment that's allowing that. What you're saying is a Norwegian fella can swim deeper in Hawaii than a Hawaiian fella can swim in Norway. That feels like it works. That works <laughs> as an analogy. Yeah. Norwegian guy's having a lovely time. Yeah, he's having a great holiday, whereas Hawaiian guy's <laughs> dead with hypothermia. <laughs> yeah, it's not an ippy dipper. Not super deep sea, but I know we enjoyed our little adventure into caves. There has been a new fish species discovered living in an Indian aquifer, which is a very cool looking thing. So researchers conducted a six-year study of water-bearing laterate rock layers. So tiny little cracks and fissures in these rocks. And they have fish fauna, the stuff living in there. So in the southern Indian state of Kerala, there is a catfish genus, which is sort of totally dedicated to this, this weird lifestyle. Oranglanus. I think. And they live exclusively in aquifers. Uh, they're very small, they're blind, and they lack pigments, but they are a sort of shocking, sort of fleshy, bloody red color. Um, so it's probably a low oxygen environment. They're probably doing a lot of gas exchange over their bodies as well, because there might not be room to ventilate your gills. So they only come to the surface really when a domestic well is being dug or cleaned. And so the team actually relied heavily on citizen science to collect data. So they just let people know, you're digging a well, you see one of these weird things, we want to know about it. And um, the study found a new species uh, so it's only 32 millimeters long no eyes blood red body and genetically distinct from the others known and it's a, a lovely sort of citizen science story as well as an interesting fish because they would not have gotten this data without engaging the community which is nice hmm. you had a new story of the phantom jelly yeah no this is cool multiple layered so this is a new paper that's come out from scientists who are employed by viking expeditions or viking cruise liners and a lot of these cruise liners have submersibles now, and we've been recently talking to a company about maybe putting these things to good use. That if there are people going to exotic places and diving in submarines, could they just leave a camera on? And over time, it's not quite citizen science. It's almost the other way around, where they collect data and give it to us and have a look at it. But anyway, so they've already, it turns out they're already doing this on Viking, which is great. And they did a whole bunch of stuff around Antarctic Peninsula, down to 280 metres. And they got a whole bunch of images of the giant phantom jelly, which is a scyphozoan known as Stigo Medusa Gigantia, <laughs> which is the really cool looking thing. It's very ribbony 
very long, very big. I think when we talked about it before, I said it looked like a lovely duvet, and like you could sort of cuddle up in it. Yeah, it's a big long thing. But the thing that, that I thought was interesting that it has a symbiotic relationship with a ophidiform fish. Have you heard of this? Hmm, no. Thalassobathia pelagica. Apparently, it lives in the umbrella of the phantom jelly, and if they're separated, they will actually reassociate with one another if they come across each other again. Like on an individual basis? They recognise each other? Yeah, apparently they forge some sort of weird friendship. But the thing I thought was cool was like, what did they get out of it? So the Gigantia provides food and shelter for the fish, and the fish aids the giant phantom jelly by removing parasites. Yeah, that is very cool. Parasites, Tom. Parasites on jelly? Yes. I didn't know. Deep sea parasites, although it's not that deep sea, but it's a little bit deep sea. Yeah, that's good. Well, that sort of leads us on to today's topic. Uh, We were covering sort of habitats, and this has been one that's been requested for a long time. So what if the habitat is another organism? And we've, we've touched upon symbiosis a few times, and I think we, in colloquial sort of language, we use symbiosis sort of incorrectly. Uh, We usually use it in the sort of nice commensal way, but symbiosis basically just means living together or together living from the, from the original Greek. So it's any type of close long-term biological interaction between two different organisms, and they need to be different species, basically. So in 1879, Hendrik Anton de defined it as the living together of unlike organisms. And symbiosis can be obligatory, so that means that they have to live together. These animals won't survive independently, or these organisms, sorry, it does exist in plants, won't survive uh, independently. Or it can be facultive, which is sort of optional. And we saw this with the hydrothermal vent communities. You know, there's the worms that have the bacteria actually within themselves in a specialized organ, and it's mutually beneficial. Then there's sort of the, the bacterial farmers who sort of graze and eat the bacteria and just sort of encourage its growth. So there's lots of different ways that symbiosis comes together it's not necessarily always beneficial for both parties and there's loads of different ways of defining it i think it's there's sort of five broad groups so one that we we often call symbiosis is when sort of two species both benefit from the relationship uh, and that's called mutualism if one of them benefits and one of them isn't affected at all so you know something tiny living on something absolutely huge it doesn't even notice that's called commensalism if there's no effect to either of them that's called neutralism if one is benefiting but the other one is being harmed, that's parasitism, which we're going to talk about today. If one has no effect and the other one is harmed, this was a new one on me, and I had to look at some examples because I couldn't think of any off the top of my head. Immensalism. So an example they gave of that was a, say, a huge tree with a little sapling in its shadow trying to grow. The sapling's got no effect on the big tree at all. It doesn't care. But the big tree is sort of removing light and resources from the, the little tree. So that was an example of that. And then and if it's negative on both counts, that is competition. So maybe competition for resources. So yeah, I, I thought it's interesting that we, we sort of use symbiosis only in its in its fluffy, nice, everyone benefits form. Uh, but actually, it just means very close association of, of organisms. That was very interesting, Tom. I learned a lot there. So which leads us on to parasites, to another organism as a habitat type in the deep sea. Who should we talk to about that? It's actually somebody who's come up. I think we maybe even teased this, and I was really glad he, he was up for having a chat with us. Yeah, now this is a guy that, I think his last cruise was the first one I ever did, way back in the day. 
So I didn't realise at the time that I was actually sailing with a lot of the, the big names. And there was a guy there called Rod Bray, National History Museum, and he was picking parasites out of various deep sea fish and trawls. And at the time, I was a mechanical engineer, and I couldn't really care less about that room. All the smelly stuff came in, so I didn't really have much to do with them, to be honest. But I remember him pulling all sorts of weird stuff out of this, that, and the other. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. But I never really had the, the guts to go and ask him what he was doing. And uh, yeah, so he was the only parasitologist I've ever come across. And it turns out he's very much dull in the game. I like the mental image of him in the uh, in the back with all the messy stuff when you didn't really care about it. And it's a bit like a, a magic trick, you know, when they keep pulling the silk hankies out their sleeve. Yeah. It's that, but it's just a fish's guts and this enormous worm. <laughs> it's not what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to roll the tapeworms around a pencil very gently. Oh. Yeah. Is that tapeworm or is that the ones that bore into your body? I can't remember. I don't want to think about it. But yeah. Oh. Anyway, Tom gave him a call. I'm joined by Dr. Rod Bray, a parasitologist specialising in the systematics, phylogeny and biology of parasitic worms, particularly the flukes. His work on deep sea parasites remains influential in the field since his retirement from the Natural History Museum in 2004, where he worked as a scientific associate since 1967. And I know you're still a regular visitor to the Natural History Museum because that's how I managed to get James to, to track you down. You can't seem to stop scientists and get them to retire properly. That seems to be actually when they get most of the work done. Well, yeah, I think we've been pretty active since uh, since I retired in 2004. And uh, in fact, I'm doing field work next week and down in Australia, so I'm still active. Wow, you're getting that far away. <laughs> yes. When I retired, I, I more or less gave up on cruising. I did a couple of cruises after I retired, but then I, I had a long association with University of Queensland, so I've been working within the South, East, South Pacific on the fish parasites there. And for some reason or other, I thought that might suit me better in retirement than cruising in the North Atlantic. Yeah, yeah, the slightly more comfortable conditions. <laughs> but uh, I have, um, did a couple of cruises after I retired with um, Monty, Monty Preed. Yes. You know Monty, presumably? Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, he was my sort of mentor. Yeah. Um, I worked with him in Ocean Lab for a while. Mm. His uh, his deep sea fish book is forever open on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> That's I can imagine. Yes, he was very very helpful, and because you know, obviously I couldn't afford from the museum to run cruises like that myself, so I was very fortunate to get on quite a few of Monty's cruises. I think Alan, his very first cruise was with you in the Atlantic with Monty, probably one of the old Discovery ones. Yes, I think it was. And if I remember rightly, we had to put him off in Cork Harbour with a dental problem. Oh, it's the tooth one. Yeah. yeah. His face swelled up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that was the only time I, I'd sailed with that Alan Jameson. My first cruises were on the Cyrilana out of Lastoft, oh. looking at the possibility of deep sea commercial fishing um, in the early 70s with a chap called Alan Jameson. I didn't know there was another one. Oh, yes, there was one. He started um, early on, sort of electrophoretic stuff, eels particularly. But then we went out and um, collected some things like microids and looking to see whether it was possible for them to use that as a commercial fishery. Didn't work out, you know, their recruitment was so slow <laughs> and that sort of thing that it sustained a fishery. Yeah, and they're not that tasty even after all that. No, I don't think so. No, I've had did try one or two and <laughs> I'm very keen, I must say. But um, no, that was interesting because we started looking at, at Macroids, which were starting to think, you know, you're getting deep sea parasites out of, out of that sort of thing. And um, we, some of the um, chimeras and things like that, we, we got some interesting stuff out of. But um, that was working sort of on the upper shelf, really. We're down to about 1,000, 1,500 metres, down the slope rather. So it was, it was interesting. And I was learning what I was doing and making all my mistakes in one go. <laughs> 
I hope. <laughs> but, um, you know, finding ways of collecting things. Because the problem with looking at parasites is you have to get a host and then you have to open it up and look inside it. And you need to really do that fairly rapidly after you've collected the stuff. Otherwise, it gets very horrible. Yeah, it's a race against time with anything deep sea. They, they break down so quickly. Yeah. That atmospheric pressure and atmospheric temperature, things just melt yeah. in your hands. That's right. I can remember touching a cusk eel and it, it feeling fizzy. <laughs> um, so it's... Uh, it's breaking down in front of you. But the, the, the stuff in the body cavity isn't too bad. I've certainly opened up macrurids and uh, cuskeels and just been greeted with a, a mass of worms. But things that are actually within the tissue, I can imagine that's a lot trickier within the sort of muscle muscle mass. Yeah, yeah it is. I mean, also, you can get decent specimens if you do it fairly rapidly. But, I mean, you, you obviously lose some. If it's coming up through a great depth, you get this stomach extruded through mm. the mouth. So you lose all the stomach parasites, probably. You can't really tell. <laughs> and then sometimes you get the rectum pushed yeah. out and uh, you lose rectal parasites. So most of the material that I collected was intestinal parasites. So you, you catch most of those, okay, I think. You just have to get down and do it. What I used to do is to collect good samples in the first, say, four hours and then freeze a lot of stuff. It's pretty grotty. But you can count things, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's such a rush when you you know a cruise comes in. Yeah, that's right. But um, you know that's part of the exercise, and you, you get get used to it. If it was easy, everyone would do it. <laughs> that's right. Well, it did turn out actually that when I uh, worked with Monty and in the um, abyssal plane, mainly down on the porcupine abyssal plane, that this is the only time any sort of parasitology has been done in in the abyss, as far as I know. Not seen anything that really goes that deep elsewhere in the literature. There's not much literature anyway. Not that's been systematically looked at. No. If we find something particularly interesting, we'll put it in a jar. But I think from what you've said already, you need to be dedicated to it. You need to be actively looking for, for parasites. And, and deep sea samples are so rare. Everyone's fighting over them. You do, really. I mean, yes, a lot of the ones that you're looking for, they're quite small, a lot of them. And um, you need to know what you're looking for, really. You get used to it but after a time. But it it's, um, means that uh, it's fairly labor-intensive. But it's, it's re rewarding in that you're finding something that really nobody's seen before. So it's, it's worth doing. And I would encourage people to look further into the, into the parasites. There's so much to be done. So many areas in the, in the world that haven't been explored at all. Young folk, I know, just starting to think about doing this sort of thing with um, modern techniques, particularly molecular techniques. And that's what we're hoping to encourage on this, basically. We've had a, a lot of listeners ask about parasitism and i know a lot of our listeners are, are sort of undergrads so we're hoping to seduce some people into parasitology it's a very open area right now there's lots of research to be done now i mean there are ways of getting at things like the hydrothermal vent stuff people are now starting to look at, at that area and that's really fascinating it's, it looks as though there's a completely different fauna there you know parasites as well as everything else but we we have managed to get a bit of molecular phylogeny done on some of our worms and they are as it looks to be a unique radiation around that sort of area. So, that, you know, there's really interesting stuff to be done in there. And because of the life cycle, how that works down there in a fascinating and completely open area, really, at the moment. Yeah, that's certainly an area I want to get into because there's some unique difficulties to the deep sea relative to, to shallower parasitism. Well, that's right. But now you can tie up a life cycle with molecular means, means that you can actually do some proper life cycle studies. Because before it was very difficult. You pick out a, a nice worm from an intermediate host and say, well, it looks like that, or it, look, it could be something like that. But they do change their morphology quite considerably during development and metamorphosis. So quite often the larval stages or the early stages are really not identifiable with the 
adults in morphology. Lots of multiple species that turn out to be one. Yeah, we're finding that. I must have to admit, we've, we've not done really population dynamics works on deep sea stuff. But I, you know, I started, I finished collecting in the early 2000s and sequencing wasn't that easy or cheap in those days. But now, I mean, we've been doing stuff on the, on the reef fauna where we find there's an enormous complication in the actual population genetics, of, well, particularly digenian parasites. But that'll be the same wherever you look. Yeah, you just find find more and more. What are the sort of main groups of parasites we find in the deep sea? Well, the ones I'm looking at are uh, digenians, so that's a trematodes, so that's flatworm, flatworm group, very common in marine environment. Within the group of um, flatworms, there are three major uh, parasitic groups. That's the tapeworms, histodes, and the ectoparasitic flutes, the monogenians. Neither monogenians or tapeworms are that common in deep sea teleosts. Cestodes are very common in elasmobranchs in the deep sea and everywhere else. And monogenians seem to die out towards the, the deeper waters. These have a direct life cycle, so you have to have contact between hosts for it to pass on. Whether there's not enough close contact between hosts, organisms, to sustain the life cycle might be the reason why then there are fewer monogenians. There isn't really a swimming stage. that They've got to actually bump up against each other. No, no, not a free, not, not a, because the Didinians, they have a much more complicated life cycle. They have a, usually three hosts and go into a mollusk, often a snail or a bivalve, as the first intermediate host. In that host, they reproduce pathogenetically. Organisms at that stage are called parthenite, and, um, and they produce enormous numbers of offspring called circari, which they come out of the, uh, the first intermediate host and, and in various ways get taken up or swallowed or burrow into the skin of the second intermediate host, which can be almost anything, crustaceans, annelids, lot of echinoderms, uh, small fishes and things like that. And then the final host gets the parasite by feeding on the intermediate hosts and uh, that's where the adult worm matures. Then virtually all hermaphrodites, and then um, they produce eggs, having been usually been fertilized. We think sometimes self-fertilization, but usually, as far as we know, they um, tend to crossbreed between individuals. So the um, the Digenian life cycle is complicated, but it does give because of the enormous numbers of cercaria produced and the enormous amount of eggs produced, they do seem to be able to sustain a deep sea life cycle much better than some of the other groups. They hedge their bets. Hedging their bets, yes. I mean, it's, a, it's like most marine things. Uh, they produce enormous numbers of offspring and a very tiny percentage actually survive. It's just interesting that there's this sort of two reproductive phases to the life cycle. There's, there's the mollusk phase, which is just using it as a bit of a factory. Yeah. And then, then there's that intermediate stage where, where it's sort of predator-prey relationship. So they're, yes. they're reproducing in the mollusk and in the final host. That's right. It's um, a way of producing enormous lot of offsprings so that you do sustain a population. You know, sometimes when you think about it rationally, it's quite amazing that it uh, can survive. Yeah. But, they, you know, they're the group I've worked on most, so I might be a little bit biased. But <laughs> they seem to me the most the most ones you find of flatworm parasites anyway. Of course, there's lots of nematodes in these things, which I haven't really explored. And then, um, then there's things like the um, ectoparasites, the copepods, particularly pretty common down in the deep sea you'll probably come across some of them on macroids you have these sort of black welts on the surface of the head of the macroids you can see that oh. that's a, a sac produced by a parasitic copepod and um, it's full of a sort of black inky stuff if you burst them open i didn't know that's what those were yeah 
I've collected a few of them. There's quite a few Copepod parasites. Then you're getting into things that I know virtually little things about, like all the apicomplex, what we used to call protists, maxozoans, and then, um, and of course, viruses and bacteria. And, you know, everything's got some fairly large number of parasites in <laughs> A lot of them are completely um, unknown or can only be deciphered by molecules nowadays. Yeah, we've hardly touched on sort of bacteria and viruses. Yeah, that's right. I, that, my view from of what I understand about deep sleep parasitology comes much to a great extent from, from Digenians. And uh, it does um, emphasize the fact that we know so very little. And a lot of what we presume about what's going on down there is related to what we know happens in shallow waters to the same sort of groups of parasites. So we presume the same sort of thing is going on in the deep. But in most cases, we, we have no direct evidence of that. That's a lot of extrapolation, but it's all we've got to work on. Well, that really is at the moment, although, as I say, there are some work being done in the States now. People are actually finding hydrothermal vent stuff, having got several of the life cycle stages sorted out. This is a very exciting area that is possible to do now. One thing I didn't do when I was working was to collect the intermediate hosts. That would be a, a viable idea now is to do a lot more work in collecting deep sea mollusks, deep sea annelids, mm. that sort of thing, and having a good look through them and see what you can find. And um, that would be a very useful and interesting thing to do, along with uh, collecting the adult worms. And now, as I say, you can really complete life cycles and uh, start really sorting out some of the fascinating complications of the life cycles of, of these groups. When you mentioned about extrapolating from shallower groups, uh, some of your work found a sort of link between polar and cold adapted species sort of relating down to, to bathial depths. It's something we see we see a lot, you know, in, in becoming cold adapted seems to give you a bit of a leg up to being deep adapted. Yes, yeah, that's definitely what appears to be the case. We, certainly the, the deep sea fauna does seem to be very close related, particularly to the, the Arctic and the Antarctic. But there's been quite a bit of work done on the Antarctic stuff. And um, the parasites are very similar, possibly not the same species, but sort of have quite a few genera in common. I mean, we've done a bit of, a bit of work has been done on the molecular phylogeny, and we're pretty happy that they are pretty closely related. Yeah, it does seem to be cold adapting is very important to, um, you know, where, where you are in the deep sea. And also, I mean, there's, there has been quite a long tradition of this thing called equatorial submergence. I don't know whether you get that in fishes or, but um, with the parasites, a lot of the things that have been known from the higher latitudes seem to be found in the deep sea and, you know, in equatorial regions. This is sort of just an idea that had been floated for, for years, and it does seem to have some, some basis. The thought I had is, mm. is that, you know, when it comes to colonizing the deep sea as a parasite, of course, you can, yeah. you can join your host. You're almost taken down there. So as the deep was colonized after one of these mass anoxic events, as the host evolves and recolonizes the deep sea, I guess it brings its its parasites along with it, and they've got to either adapt or or bust, basically. Yeah, that's right. No, it does look as if that is the case. Uh, we don't know how much actual life cycle is going on in the abyss. Whether most of the stuff that we're finding has been taken down there by uh, fish as they as they get deeper. I mean, one of the I mean, this Corypheroides armatus is the really common thing that we've looked at down in the water, and that has quite a quite a depth profile. So it probably picks up parasites, and the life cycle is probably mainly of the parasites is in the slightly shallower waters than the abyss, anyway. But we don't know again. But it does seem that there's quite a lot of um, invertebrates in the abyss that could be intermediate hosts. I don't think there's any shortage of candidates down there. 
and uh, it does seem to be there's uh, some sort of um, relationship between parasites and and the fish going down in, within their actual individual life cycles into deep water yeah of course they've got shallower stages as juveniles so they could always pick them up as juveniles and then take yeah. them with them they're in the plankton actually as juveniles so um, yeah. there's plenty of chances to pick up some hitchhikers the other thing that we find is that the benthopelagic fishes have a much smaller parasite burden partly because of the there's not a surface you know the when you're a demersal you've got a surface where everything falls down to something mm. and where, whereas if you're in the pelagic regions particularly in the deeper waters there seems to be a much poorer parasite burden there i suppose it could only really be trophic transfer yeah. you're not likely to bump into another one <laughs> it, it tends to be something eating something else yeah that's exactly the case yeah do they have to become less specialised? Yeah, I think that's true. The few that have been picked up in bathypelagic fishes are, as far as we know, very generalised, very non-specific parasites. Whereas the ones in the benthic fishes are often pretty host-specific. There does seem to be some quite close relationship with the bottom or, or the slope or whatever. The further away you get away from that, the smaller number of parasites you pick up. Until you get into the epipelagic areas where there's a lot of photic stuff going on and then you do pick up parasites there. There's a sort of big zone in, in the middle of the ocean where there doesn't seem to be a lot of parasite transmission going on. Everything's a bit too spread out. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes I think it's a miracle that these things survive at all. But I suppose it's enormous numbers down there and we're very much scratching the surface of what's going on. There's a lot of scavengers. Do you think uh, scavenging is a good vector? Yeah, I think probably scavenging is, is how most of these things are picked up, yeah. And the grenadiers, at least, are incredibly long-lived. You can get 40 to 80 years in an adult, so that's a long time to, yeah. to build up a parasite load. Well, that's it. I mean, the parasite loads are quite good in grenadiers, but um, as you say, they're probably being affected for... Um, 40, 50 years. I mean, another thing is we're not at all certain how long the parasites actually live, but certainly some of them seem to go to quite a big size for a parasite. Mm. I think it's uh, it's not a, a straightforward life cycle down there, and I think it is uh, to do with the fact that they are so very long-lived, a lot of these things, that they manage to sustain the parasite life cycle down there. The complexity of the, of the life cycle, the sort of multi-host, multi-stage, is probably a bit of a blessing to these long-lived fish because they've got such a tight energy budget. They're living on, on so little food that if they could reproduce within the final host, uh, it would make sense that you could easily overwhelm and, and kill something like a grenadier on its 40-year life cycle. Whereas they live a bit more in balance at this stage when they're when they're sort of ingesting the final stage. Yeah, none of these things actually reproduce in the final host like that. So they all have to be taken by food, and uh, so that yes, you're right. It's a it's a, a balance. Obviously, if if they uh, started uh, producing so many, they killed off the the host. It wouldn't be um, an efficient way of running a parasite life cycle. Yeah, they're playing the long game. Sometimes it at the intermediate stage. I mean, there's a case of some, for instance, the um, some parasites get into ketognaths and um, arrowworms and uh, they change the colour of the worm. So they become more prominent and the small fish go for them more readily than the other. Huh. Sometimes at the intermediate host stage, the parasite does want the death of the host. It wants to be eaten at that stage. Yeah, that's exactly, yes, that's right. Yeah, manipulating the host is quite creepy. Yeah, there's some, quite a lot of really frightening things like that. Even in man, some of these parasites can cause actually change change behaviour to some extent. It, it's a common thing that the intermediate stages try and get their host eaten, try and make it more prominent or less mobile or something like that, so it's consumed more easily. 
Frightening stuff. What would you say is the is the most grisly among the deep sea? Is there a particularly gross <laughs> parasite? Well, I'm not certain it's very easy to say because we're looking at the final host. A lot of these things are, are in a pretty good balance with the host. There's no point in killing the final host. There are some anecdotal stories about these parasites causing some problem. They're probably grazing on the surface of the gut, and most of them, but um, making very little evidence of the fact that, that they're actually causing anything but perhaps very low levels of pathogenicity. So they're, they're not really very grisly in that regard, not like some of the other things that you, you hear about, the um, particularly the, the way that parasites um, change the behaviour of their hosts and, and do horrible things. Much more of a balance with the deep sea. It's about not killing the host too quickly. Yeah, I think so. I think presumably, as you're saying, the grenadiers are sort of on the edge of getting enough food and uh, actually surviving so that any major parasite effect would uh, polish them off pretty quick. So I think they're mostly... Yeah. It's a good uh, strategy, really, for a parasite not to kill its host unless it helps it continuance of the life cycle, which it doesn't for... A, the adult parasite because it's producing large number of eggs at that stage and they're just passing out with the feces and um, the longer that happens the more more parasites you're going to get well that makes sense there's been some theories about congregations of deep sea animals being a good vector so things like a whale fall or a carcass that's going to gather a lot of these grenadiers in one place and i guess they if they're gorging themselves they're probably pooping as well so they're shedding eggs onto the onto the area while while others are are there and, and I'm guessing for these ectoparasites, the ones actually on the bodies, that feeding frenzy where you see the fish sort of brushing up against each other, that's how they're transferred. Yes, yeah, I should think so. But I don't think anything's been done on the parasite aspects of that. And again, that would be a very interesting thing to do. I remember that one stage Monty was sending down dead dolphins yes. so they could photograph what was happening and following the arrival of things like all these big amphipods that turn up and that sort of thing. I mean, as you say, there there's amphipods there. There'll be a lot of other small invertebrates around. So that would be a good place to get your, your life cycle going. Yeah. I've got a running theory that we're going to find a whale parasite that completes its life cycle in a in a deep sea scavenger. Yes. It's, it's where they all end up, really. Yeah, that's right. That would, that would be a very interesting thing to go into that in, in more detail because, it's, I mean, there's a, there's a complete community, isn't there, that develops around these whales. And, uh, yeah, it's a habitat. Presumably, it's a very good place for parasite transmission to go on. But uh, again, we're, that's a, you know just saying that's the likelihood of what happens. We don't know. Lots of work still to be done. But again, I mean, that's the sort of thing that people could do. I mean, it's a really interesting thing to to look into that. And then get down there now with your submersibles and whatnot and do some proper collecting. Yeah, do some careful collecting rather than trawling. Virtually everything that I've collected have been done from deep sea trawling, which is laborious. And (laughs) the other problem is because you're doing a lot of damage at the bottom as well. Yeah. Which is not a good thing to do. And um, there hasn't really been any alternative. But now with things like some of the submersibles and things that can get down there and uh, actually collect things individually would be a very useful way of, of dealing with that. We did do a little bit on hydrothermal vent parasites in the um, southeast Pacific. That was, was collected by fish trap, and that, so that's something that could be, be used. Yeah, you don't get many specimens, but they tend to be in really good condition. That's right. And a lot of stuff gets damaged in a trawl. So if you're after ectoparasites, I'm guessing a trap is great. Is there any misconceptions? Because we like to push against any sort of tropes and, and things around the deep sea. Unfortunately, the deep sea seems particularly vulnerable to just the propagation of things that aren't true. Is there anything you'd like to 
set the record straight when it comes to parasites. I think one of the things that surprised me the most here is, you know, it is parasitism. It is a one-sided relationship, but it's it's much more in harmony than I anticipated. Our perception is something infects your body and it's trying to kill you, whereas actually it's it's just trying to survive. Well, yes, a lot of parasitism doesn't seem to have much pathogenicity anyway. And you've got to be in balance to survive as a parasite. So from the parasite's point of view, it's definitely, in lots of cases, it's against your um, good to um, kill off the host. So you try and keep it alive as long as possible. And by doing that, you, you have very little pathogenic effect. Of course, you do. You have some effect because you're taking nutrients away from from the host. But um, usually, they are small relative to the host size. Anyway, so they're having pretty small effect on the actual host survival. So yeah, no, you're right. It, parasites are a problem. I mean, when you get um, in certain conditions where there's a large number of parasites in a in host, like in a fish farm or in human society where you get a lot of transmission of parasites or virus things like that you can get a lot of problems but in a normal wild situation a lot of the parasites have very little effect on the final host at least yeah certainly the um the idea of a parasite is that it that it's sort of trying to gnaw away at your insides and do away with you is usually not the case but then of course it depends on what parasite and what their life cycle is like and what how they survive i mean something like a lamprey or other you know you do really damage your host you bore into it and eat the host and then move on to another one but with uh, most parasites it's not so easy to move as an adult from host to host so you have to keep your host alive as long as possible yeah it's interesting where the the examples of where that breaks down it's it's artificial you know it's fish farms it's it's denser populations than would be natural and that the the parasite has evolved to live in this balance with its host but if we if we mess with the equation then that's when it becomes sort of harmful and i, I know talking from fishy areas of things you know you talk about parasite load and it's it's just a, a constant balance in the in a fish and, and maybe a sickly one it might push them over the edge because it is a drain on the fish's system but it's perfectly normal to be you know living in balance with these parasites well yes parasitism is a very normal arrangement and uh, quite often it's a indicator of a good well-balanced ecosystem if there's a good parasite form in, in there <laughs> some of these free living parts of the life cycle like the cicaria which come out of the snail and find the second intermediate host these are in the environment and if the environment's polluted you're going to lose those parasites that's a really interesting that's a good take home that parasites are an indicator of a good stable and healthy ecology it's really interesting well i mean they, i mean they are a result of the meeting of individual organisms and the good feeding habits good feeding conditions so yeah it's a it's certainly an indicator of that and that they need so many hosts they'd be the first to reveal if something had happened to one of the steps along that chain rather than us just maybe focusing on on apex predators and things at the top it, you know if there's a breakdown at the lower trophic levels yeah maybe parasite load is the the giveaway yeah, that's right. I mean, these sort of things have been used as indicators of pollution and of indicators of movements. I mean, some of the life cycle, I'm talking about shallow water stuff that we know more about, some of the life cycles we know the intermediate host doesn't occur in a certain area so that we know if the parasite is in that certain area, that host has come from somewhere else. You know, it's a rough indicator of movement and stock conditions. Um, so it has been used fairly successfully as an indicator in in shallow water conditions, there'll be one or two cases where they've tried to do it with deeper water, but we often don't know enough about the life cycles to, to make very strong inferences from that.
Yeah, we don't have the data, but it would make sense with using the the larger hosts as a way of of getting around. You know, if you yeah. uh, if you're a deep sea pelagic parasite, then you've got the the diurnal migration <laughs> and everything's sort of coming up and down during the daily cycle. And then yeah. we don't know what the macruids are doing. Like it's such a mystery how they reproduce, but it makes sense that they they all get together at some point. Yes, there must must be somewhere. When you're working on parasites, you get used to thinking of parasites as fascinating organisms who deserve to live sort of thing. Whereas in generally people probably think of them as problems and uh, something to get rid of, which they are in some cases, but um, in lots of cases they're just part of the natural system. Is there any competition on, on the host? Are there any parasites that, that actively fight over their host? Well, there are, yes. I mean, there's um, there's some fascinating stuff done in, the, say, in the mollusk where there's pathogenetic reproduction. In some mollusks where there's two or three parasites in the same mollusk, different species of parasite, there is predation of one parasite on another. Wow. <laughs> there are groups of these individual organisms that are developed in the part by pathogenesis who are like soldier ants, the soldier parthenite that actually consume the other species. Oh, wow. I mean, that's um, snails and things on in shallow areas where they really, really study them in detail. But there's, there's a sort of eusociality in um, some of these individual species at that level, in the first intermediate host. Yeah, that, that's pushing the definition a little bit. That, that could be seen as advantageous. Well, yes, it could be, but it, often it just means that one parasite is more dominant in that host and often the the mollusk hosts are in fact uh, castrated by their parasites so there that can be a problem yeah there's all sorts of complications like that of course if you've got a, a group of parasites in a, a gut of a host for instance they'll be segregated really they pick an end some you know front end and some in the, middle and some in the rectum you know and also it's been found that um if you've got a parasite two parasites in a in a host they'll segregate a bit if you've got several parasites they'll segregate more tightly right. so it depends on what groups of parasites you've got in the host where the parasite is in the host because if there's a lot of different species of parasite they'll segregate into smaller areas than if there are fewer parasites in the host ah, and it's not specialization within that parasite they will you know say one that's usually found at one point in the gut will will move over a little bit to stop competition well, there are parasites that have their niches along with that, but their niches can be bigger if there's less competition going on. And then if there's competition, then the, the niches will be restricted more. So, they, you know, if they're on their own, they're not going to be right through the gut, for instance. They'll, they'll have a, a niche, but they'll be quite a wide niche probably and much smaller if there's competition going on. That's really interesting. It's not to do, to do with the deep sea specifically, but presumably this is going on down there. It would, it would make sense. So there's, yeah, sort of looking at this internal environment as a, as a habitat in itself, are there are there predators on the parasites? And do the parasites have their own parasites? Are we Russian nesting dolls? Well, they do have their own parasites. Um, not much known about that, as far as I know. But you do get um, other parasites, usually um, protists or, you know, apicomplex and things like that in, in the Digenian, certainly. And also, actually, we, I remember once we, we discovered a lump on a... There's a thing called otodistum, which lives in the body cavity of sharks. It's a digenium. grows to quite a big size. And there were big lumps on it. And we sent it to an expert in, in the States somewhere, and he looked at it and said it was a neuroma, a cancer. So as far as we know, that's the only cancer we've seen in, in the digenium. No one has spared. No. The sharks are supposed not to have cancer, aren't they? They're immune from cancer, so it's, their parasites aren't. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because originally, you know, it's quite often a, a less scientific cure for cancer is uh, is eating shark cartilage. So evidently it doesn't work on their parasites. <laughs> no, apparently not. Oh, that's fascinating. I like that one. How about predation? Are there any parasites that eat other parasites within the host? Well, only the ones in I was talking about in the snails earlier. But you do find occasionally parasites with lumps out of them as if somebody's chewed on them. But um, whether that's... Uh, you know, just a bit of cannibalism or <laughs> whether it's actually a competition between different things. I don't know. In fact, there's one group. I mean, it's not, again, not deep sea, but we find it a lot in, in reef fishes that virtually all the parasites have nibbled away. And <laughs> I don't think there's any, not much actual predation of the parasite. Yeah. <laughs> you're already in a meat habitat, essentially. So you don't need, maybe you don't need to go hunting around for other flukes. You, you're already surrounded by food. <laughs> yeah, again, it's um, something that um, virtually everything I've said in the last few minutes has been stuff from shallow water that we can easily study. But one presumes that similar things are going on in the, in the deep sea. Yeah, we have to until we, until we know more, but it makes sense. It's good to base on. That's fantastic. Were there, were there any final thoughts? Were there, was there anything you think I've sort of failed to, to reach? Anything interesting? We did do a little bit of work uh, on the phylogeny of these digenians. There does appear to be, as far as phylogeny is concerned, a bit of actual radiation in the deep sea. So I think there's um, there's some evolution going on in the deep sea, but um, every group that we know in the deep sea has got shallow water relations, although some of them don't seem that close. So there's some sort of radiation going on down there. But uh, I mean, there's a, one occasion, um, a fish called Epigonus, which is a perciform fish. Don't find many of those in the deep sea. And it so happens that their parasites in the deep sea are related to shallow water parasites. So they've probably gone into the deep sea, I guess, fairly recently, taking their shallow water parasites with them. So there is, you know, there's um, a lot to be learned about how the deep sea fauna develops. Because there are these sort of anoxic episodes, so presumably things are having to re be replenished every so often. Oh, that's interesting. With the deep sea fish often representing some of the older groups, is that reflected in their parasites? Do you see uh, the sort of older lineages present in the deep sea? No. No, I don't think we could say that. Oh, yeah. A lot of host switching goes on in parasitology, although individual hosts and individual species in general often have some sort of specificity. Uh, across a larger group, there's an awful lot of host switching, and I don't think that I would say that, that necessarily the parasites that we find are that primitive. They are embedded within the large phylogeny of shallow water ones as well. Although the, there are, as I say, radiations in the deep sea, they're not enormous radiations. They're not big, high-level taxa. Right. So kind of genus level, there isn't a, a new family. Yeah, that's right. Not higher level taxa. The one other thing we did find that was quite interesting in the moving away from digenians in, in the uh, holocephalans, in the rabbit fishes, there is a thing called gyrocotyle, which you find almost in every specimen. That's fascinating. And these are related to the tapeworms. They don't have segments. They are just in one part. They don't have segments like most tapeworms, but they're related and sort of primitive tapeworms. And these are found in virtually every holocephalon you pick out and you look at. But we found in the thing called rhino chimera, which is a very strange looking thing. Have you seen one? Yeah, they're amazing. I've got one in the collection. These have ordinary strobilate segmented tapeworms in them. And we found that for the first time. And um, these are just embedded in the general shallow water shark and shark tapeworm groups. So this is presumably a much later piece of host switching 
into the chimeras. Oh. Only to occur in um, in that one group, in, in Rhino Chimera. It's been found, we found it in the North Atlantic and some of it's found it in the Pacific, but never in any of the other chimeras. Interesting, because the chimera is a pretty ancient group. One of the pictures I sent you was a picture of a, a gyrocotyle from Harry Otter. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. That's a, uh, another chimera with a strange nose. <laughs> That's something that we found. That's a new species we described. That's amazing. These are another... A bit of a branch away from what I've been doing mostly, but we've been doing a little bit of work on these groups. The chimera seem to have a particularly hard time because yeah. they they have the they almost always have the copepods in at least one eye, and then there's at the base of the fins and even the claspers as well. They always seem to have these. I, I don't know enough about them, but they've got like a holdfast, and then these two two large reproductive bodies you see sort of fruiting off. But they're quite large. Yeah, these are yeah, well, these are copepod parasites. I mean, as I say, virtually everyone you look at. We'll have two of these big gyrocotyle in the spiral intestine or in the stomach, actually. And just two? Do they tend to, to be pairs? Normally two, yes. Yeah, that's interesting. The guts are weird in, in Chimera, aren't they? They don't, they don't really have a stomach. They go sort of directly into the intestine. I seem to remember there was a little sort of area in front of the intestine, but I can't remember now. It's a long time since I looked in a Chimera. I quite like the sentence, it's been a long time since I looked in a Chimera. (laughs) (laughs) We're always on the lookout for new t-shirts, so that might be our next merchandise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's that's fantastic, Rob. Was there any sort of final thoughts? Well, I said really at the beginning, it's a fascinating area, needs a tremendous lot more work, and I would recommend anybody got uh, that sort of uh, urge in them to look at parasites. They're a fascinating group, and, um, and there's an enormous amount to be done on them. Brilliant. Yeah, so anyone listening... Picking their direction in life, this is certainly a viable one, lots left to do. What, what I really enjoy about it is I, I like ecology, I like sort of interaction and, and the intelligent ways that things, things slot together, and this feels like it has lots of that. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, you're dealing with very close associations between different organisms, and, and you know, it's something that's really fascinating to try and unravel. Oh, that's amazing. Thanks so much for your time, Rod. I really enjoyed that. So this episode's quite uh, quite fortuitous, really. We're us along with everyone else in the world is pretty obsessed with the Last of Us TV show. Uh, I know we had a little chat about it. You're a couple of episodes ahead of me as well, so no spoilers. Yeah, no, it's good. I like it. But it's nice. I mean, I mean, the guess the story's set around the whole fungal parasitology type of thing and the zombie nature of the whole thing. But it's a cool TV show, regardless of that. That's just a sort of the setting and the antagonist to uh, actually a very interesting story i don't normally like big tv shows like that i don't really have time for it but that one is actually particularly good love it it's got more sort of interesting biology on that i sort of fell off the walking dead because in the first series they were like talking about the infection and they went to the cdc and there was like i like the science of it and i like it if it sort of makes scientific sense mm. um and then it sort of just became much more peopley but i like that this one jumps 20 years so there's no yeah remnants of society or anything like that, that that this is the norm now and everyone has sort of adapted to this and there's a new generation that has never known a world without this and it's i'll, I'll put a link to it because the opening which sets the scene and it, it's a it's a it's a it's an interview panel from like the 70s and everyone's smoking and it, it's a real departure from the rest of the show but it is really haunting it sort of sets the scene about how yeah. terrifying these fungal infections can be it's john hannah isn't it he's talking about yeah. fungal parasites can change your behavior and stuff like that and he's like no that's what we should be worried about and the guy's like oh, yeah whatever mate <laughs> yeah and then they're like oh but they can't live in a warmer environment and then they're like well you know if something forced evolution like maybe the planet got a little bit warmer and then everyone watching is like oh <laughs> i know what this show's about before you know everyone has an isopod in their mouth oh yeah and they stick them out so they can talk to each other yeah gross of course we've, we've got parasitology merch 
Uh, there was one bit that rubbed up against me a little bit with the show, and maybe they're going to explain this like a bit later on. In the game, the infection is transferred by fungal spores, which makes more sense. I know it's probably difficult, more difficult to write into a plot because there's always that like, well, did they breathe in enough? And you know, you've got people acting in gas masks, it probably doesn't work. So they made it much more simple of like a very direct infection. But the infected are still covered in sort of mushrooms and growths, which are the fruiting bodies, which are to release spores. So I don't know if they're going to address that. But that I, I like I like a biologically accurate monster, and that sort of rubbed me the wrong way. But what's the whole point of the thing of being bitten? Does that mean then only your saliva carries the infection? It's the same in zombie. Why do you have to be actually bitten and draw blood? Yeah, they um they went a little extra way with the with the Walking Dead, where everyone was already infected. Everyone will come back, but a zombie bite is fatal. Like it had a secondary mode to it. Ooh. I suppose I've got to explain a way why regular dead people come back, not just people who are bitten. Anyway, we should talk about deep sea parasitology as well. We could. We're not super knowledgeable, but we've certainly seen a fair bit of it. Well, the problem is we see it quite a lot, we just don't know. I mean, the classic one is the copy board hanging off Chimera's eyes. He got these big, huge Chimeras swooping around, and they've almost got this long, horrible little copy pod stuck in. It's normally one per eye, isn't it? Just trailing behind. Yeah. And I've certainly seen some external parasites on the grenadiers down in Antarctica. I always thought Antarctica would be nice and clean for some reason, but it was probably more parasites down there than I've seen anywhere else. And recently, well, actually, we'll tell the story. This is when we good 10 years ago I think we had a mystery fluff we had a oh the mystery fluff a conference in Glasgow we managed to get most of the big deep sea guys some old guards some new guard we got them all in Glasgow to talk about deep sea fishies and at the end I asked everyone to start the conference to give me all your weird stuff and at the end we'll just have like an hour or so of just showing all the weird stuff that you can never publish just out of curiosity and one of the things that emerged from that is certainly us in around New Zealand and around the UK we're seeing this, what it looked like a fungal infection, it's not a fungi because it's in deep sea, but it looked like that on the grenadiers. And as we showed it, I think Vincent from New Zealand said, oh, I've seen it in this place, whatever. And Jeff Drazen off Hawaii in California was like, oh, I've seen it over there as well. And we're desperately trying to figure out what it was. And it turned out Jeff had a sample, or we got someone in to have a look at it, and then they just let us down. We never really figured out what it was. But more recently in Japan, we saw it on this snailfish, and it looks like an encrusted mat of grey matter around the gill cavity sometimes. Sometimes it spreads around the eye. It looks really awful. It looks really itchy. It's obviously not benefiting the animal in any way, but yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it does look very much like a fungal infection, but it can't be. So what that is is a bit of a mystery. If anyone is a, is a keen fish keeper, when you have a bacterial ulcer and it gets that secondary fungal infection, it looks just like that. We'll, we'll put some pictures in the show notes, but yeah, it looks just like that. I, if I'd seen it on like a koi carp or something, that's absolutely what I would have called it. But uh, yeah, it's knocking around in some deep sea critters. I think that anyone sort of setting up a conference or even just a meeting, I think that was such a good idea because we'd, especially in the deep sea, we'd all had, oh, that was a weird thing, but it's just one data point and you can't do anything about mm. it. Whenever you get a load of people together, ask them to bring all of those up because so many of these, like, I, I think a few like things came of that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, get someone to sort of like, I saw this weird thing, and then a handle go up, I saw it too, and I saw it here, and then another handle go up, and suddenly you've got a data set when you'd given up and thought, oh, I, I don't know what to do with this one observation. My favorite one from that session was Malcolm Clark because he had a drop camera of somewhere off New Zealand, Chatham Rise, I think it was. And uh, it was nothing to do with fish at all, but the camera just nudges the seafloor and it's on a relatively gradual slope and it starts a little avalanche <laughs> and you can see the whole thing of video. Oh yeah, yeah, it's kicked up a bit of mud. And then you realize that mud is moving and it's still moving and it's still moving and it goes on <laughs> and on and it's traveling the same direction as they're moving with the camera. So it follows it and it doesn't look steep at all. Yeah, the whole slope just collapsed, just one little nudge. That was very cool. 
Like one of those penny games at the uh, at the arcade. Yeah. You drop the two peas in and just one of them nudges another one, nudges another one. Yeah, it's like as if you take a Norwegian to Hawaii and start rolling him down a hill. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then he bumps into some tourists and they start rolling. He bumps into a guy from Sweden who falls over, and before you know it, the fins are all over the place. Ooh. I don't know what's happening here. I don't know why we're throwing Scandinavians down a Hawaiian <laughs> volcano, but it's better than drowning Hawaii in a fjord. Good analogy. So some really nice bits from the interview, including maybe a, a, a potential niche bit of new merch, which was <laughs> just offhandedly saying, it's been some time since I looked inside a chimera. Um, so I'll be up for that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I wonder how many people actually truly have looked inside a chimera. To be honest, I have, but I haven't looked inside it, but I have seen its insides on the outside because when you bring them up, they often prolapse out their anus. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, that's supposed to be on the inside, but I can see it. <laughs> kind of situation. <laughs> Isn't that supposed to be on the inside conversation? Yeah. In yes. Yeah. But chimeras unfortunately do that when you bring them up. It's interesting because there's no gas in there. I don't know actually what causes the inversion. Uh, I don't know. How, how long do you want to sit around thinking about that? Well, it's, it's ruined my week. <laughs> yeah, it's quite gross, actually. Yeah, it's terrible the things we do to these poor beasts. I thought it was it was interesting the the multi stage life cycles and how actually that like it seemed needlessly complicated. It, it seems like well, why wouldn't you just sort of exist in one host? That seems to work in balance really nicely. It also seems far worse to be an intermediate host. Um, the final host, the, the parasites don't seem to want to kill you. But the intermediate host, it's all about hijacking it and uh, reproducing as much as you can and then getting it killed. It was amazing that the, the species compete. So you can actually have almost beneficial parasites because they, they're killing off the other parasites. But then it sounds like they do hijack your appearance and behavior to try and get you eaten by the final one. So the intermediate stage is just parasites are just using you for your body cavities. Pretty much. So that they're, they're reproductive at two stages in their life. There's like a, a sort of swarming stage within the second second host where you just want to make as much as possible and sort of use the host up, basically. It's a short-term thing. Mm. And then when you get into the final host, that's sexual reproduction and that's when you're sort of releasing eggs and gametes and, and that's much more long-term and that's the host you don't want to kill because you want to live in there basically for the whole of your life, uh, reproducing as much as you like. And, and sharing the space, that was interesting, like uh, uncomfortable flatmates, they will call dibs on a certain area of the organism. Uh, so species that would say usually be all through the gut, if there are other parasites present, will sort of agree on certain areas <laughs> and wow. sort of stay to their area. So uh, so yeah, this poor fish ends up with like a bit of a flat share uh, and everyone's arguing over who's drunk all the milk, but uh, you have your own areas to stop conflict and that's much more long term and i think that certainly with the pace of life of say the deep sea fish because the, the grenadiers came up a lot they're incredibly tight energy budget you know they've, they spend 40 years saving up enough energy just to reproduce once then if the parasites could reproduce within them that you could easily just overwhelm the host and kill it. So the fact that they they have to come through this secondary host means that the fish is always taking in new parasites, but also the old ones are kind of dying off as well, and it maintains a balance, basically, rather than being sort of fatal. So the parasites don't live the entire lifespan of the host, then? They just come and go? Yeah, they sort of live out their lives uh, and then are sort of continually replenished, basically. <sighs> Some life in it. I know. And when you factor in like the fish migrations and things like that, it's a good way of getting around. They've got really complex life cycles and then they are a little bit less specific in the deep sea just because things are so are so spread out. But these like trophic ones, these ones that are ingested have these quite complex 
life cycles. And then the exoparasites, the ones that live on the outside, they basically need contact. So they need to bump into another animal. So you know those copepods we see on the chimera eyes, yeah. those two like lobes off those, those are the, the sort of reproductive organs. And so you need to get pretty close contact with another chimera basically and he was talking about food falls food falls are a great way of sort of parasites transferring because these animals are usually quite spread out but then a whale carcass comes down or a big dead thing basically just like our camera landers all the fish gather together and we've seen how they sort of shoulder up to each other and rub against each other so that's probably a great way of the parasites getting spread around at the feeding frenzy at the discotheque at the discotheque and there's probably something happening on the reproductive end as well but we we don't quite know what grenadiers do no one's ever asked Oh, it seems rude. They only get to do it once, probably, so it'd be rude to interrupt them. How do they know, though? Because apparently, we, weren't you saying a few episodes ago that they've, they probably don't have much of a memory? Instinct, I guess. Maybe they're doing it every day, they just can't remember. <laughs> I think that's worked out from the energy budget. They probably don't have the energy stored to reproduce more than once. Didn't you do a cruise on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge when you're pulling up all these big dogfish and stuff like that? And didn't they all have, like, parasites in their nostrils? Oh, yeah. So you remember somebody showed me a video of like a parasite being like caught screwed out of the thing's nostrils. Oh, it is I'm thinking, that's harsh. That's, I mean, that's not as harsh as the I'm your tongue now parasite, but... That will always be the winner. I'm your nostrils now is pretty grim as well. Yeah, I, it was interesting. Like Rod is obviously fascinated by parasitism, and I like it's for for ecology. It, you know, you don't get animals living together as closely as that. So it's actually like as a scientific area of study, it's fascinating. But I think totally sensibly, we have a natural aversion <laughs> to parasites. So why are parasites never really mentioned when you do a study of biodiversity in the number of species in a given area? Has parasites ever come into that? Because surely the fact that we sort of don't like them and are a bit yucky by them, but it's still a organism in a given area well from chatting it seems actually they're brilliant indicator species because they sort of manifest a whole chain of other organisms if the intermediate organism which is quite often like a mollusk if that has been wiped out then you're going to see that in the parasite population in the fish whereas the fish might be easier to sample so actually they're a great a high parasite load is a great indicator of a healthy ecosystem huh. which i found really interesting and the reason we aren't really looking at this is we don't have that many parasitologists and they require sort of quite specific sampling so i think unless you have a parasitologist on board or as we all go out there and we do sampling maybe get in touch with your local friendly parasitologist and see how they want things preserved because they they have a tendency to degrade really quickly and if you preserve them wrong they just turn into mush so um yeah it, we're dropping the ball on that there's loads to be learned from parasites but we're just not not studying Feels like parasites are like second class citizens. They don't get a look in. Where they're still they're still just ones and zeros in Excel. <laughs> yeah. You can still draw a lovely graph. Yeah. Well that was Rod's sort of closing remark was a little bit of a call to arms. Like this is a really interesting area to study. There is still loads to be done. So like you could take your research in loads of different directions. And there's not enough people studying it. So uh, anyone sort of in their early career and thinking which direction to go in and has been inspired by this. There is green and verdant fields of scientific research ahead of you. I don't know how it works with funding. Don't let the last of us put you off it'll be fine they might be having a great time in there if you had to have a parasite where would you where would you want it oh no uh... yeah i would like a pair of ectoparasites i would have them on my ears as a nice pair of earrings oh oh that's not too bad yeah in dark souls you can get an egg laid on your head which then hatches into a big grub so you end up walking around the rest of the game with this um <laughs> huge tendril sticking out of your head and you can use it as an attack <laughs> You're talking about computer games again.
I am. But Last of Us was a computer game first, so it's cool now. But we were talking last week about someone's going to watch us play computer games. Yes, yeah. I've been looking into sort of ways of making that happen and potential games. I'm looking for something maybe a bit more decision-based rather than reflexy, because I think, like, if it's something where you have to make decisions, like us both doing it... Like FIFA 96? Yeah, yeah, we'll play Football Manager. <laughs> if anyone has any recommendations, let me know. I, I, I bought Soma in the sale thinking that might be an interesting one. That's a deep-sea one. But I was talking to Premo and she said it, it deals more with with sort of the nature of consciousness and things like that. It gets quite philosophical. But I think there is there is some deep-sea scenes in that. Well, I thought, what, what's happened to computer games? I thought it was like two big dudes punching each other in the head. And you just keep oh, going, until you've punched the person in the head so much that you win. Isn't that now Now the person you're punching in the head has this like elaborate, rich backstory and you're you're crying while you do it oh, <laughs> this is one of these games that takes like eight years to complete yeah and you have to be sobbing at the end of it it has to be like an emotional experience so i can't just give you a special move which is like a <laughs> double tap on the elbow on the smackdown and then declare the winner you've got to be lost in another world oh lot's changed it has it has either way i'll still beat you anyway so bring it on that's what i say <laughs> it should be something decision-based that we do by committee we sort of discuss what we decide and see what happens in the story i don't care just pick a game and let's do it i still don't understand why people want to watch us do that but okay fine i'm not competitive or nothing but i will win e even if we're meant to be cooperating you will win yeah <laughs> right well even if we're on the same side i'll still be better than you that's what i'm saying okay good good I'm, I'm looking at my um my symbiosis graph here and seeing where that falls where our relationship falls <laughs> yeah we're, we're, we're both it's, it's an advantage to both of us but one of them is better oh okay right what's what's that called is that competitive competition positive uh, competition encouragement influencer a parasitic influencer okay you're an influencer i'm going to add that to the i, I can change the wiki today yeah. we've got wiki uh, editor right so yeah we'll um i'll add that to the the chart yeah sorry Hello, my name is Don Walsh. I'm an oceanographer and explorer, but also in a former life, I was a submarine captain. So I'd like to talk about a little sea story that I have called Submarines and Parasites. Back in the late 1960s, when I had command of the submarine, I used to volunteer for research and development projects that were being done by the underwater research laboratories in the San Diego area where my submarine was based. One of these projects was to help test out a portable underwater listening array being developed by the Navy and uh, in the experimental stages of development, and they needed to test the uh, array against a uh, target submarine. That was us. Now, this portable array was designed to be temporarily installed on the seafloor in areas where the Navy might expect submarines to pass through narrow areas, such as, say, the entrance to a uh, harbor or uh, a strait between two islands, something like that. So um, we went up to uh, the area just off Los Angeles Harbor and uh, started to make uh, racetrack uh, runs for the array. And we were asked to operate in different modes, for example, on the battery only for a super quiet mode or, or running one or more of our engines while submerged because my submarine was equipped with a snorkel system, which was a way that we could run engines submerged by use of a intake pipe sticking up through the surface and an exhaust pipe uh, also sticking up above the surface. And we 
we're in an area of pretty heavy traffic because, you know, it was the entrance to the Los Angeles Harbor and we uh, had to be kind of cautious. So I spent that whole time up in the conning tower with the watchstander officer uh, next to the periscopes there so we could see what was going on. And we were averaging, uh, well, our depths were somewhere between 48, 52, 55 feet, depending on what uh, part of the test card we were doing what mode we were operating in. The idea, of course, was to give the uh, scientists developing this array an idea of what a submarine, a real submarine might sound like in its various stages of operation from super quiet to kind of noisy. But we never were on the surface. So here we are going around this racetrack, doing the various things that we're asked to do, various modes of operation. And uh, I was next to the sonar man that's, who's listening for traffic because there's certainly a lot of traffic around going in and out of that major seaport. And we had to be very careful because most of them couldn't see a submarine. We, even though we, we only had two, uh, these two pipes sticking up through the water. And so uh, we were kind of hyper alert. The sound man said, Captain, I think I hear a small fishing boat, something like that. I mean, I, I can hear all these tankers and big cargo ships, but this is a high-pitched noise like an outboard motor. I said, okay, well, let's have a look. So I got over the periscope and looked outside, and I could see this uh, small fishing boat, probably 10 or 15 feet long, and one guy standing up with uh, a fishing rod doing some sport fishing. Well, that's fine. He's not going to be any threat to us. I mean, if he bumps into us, a woe be unto him because he'd probably get sunk uh, just colliding with one of my pipes that are up in the air. And, uh, and he noticed us. Well, he should because, you know, that diesel exhaust smoke coming out of the exhaust pipe, even though we were submerged, uh, it's pretty easy to see and it might have been even a little smoky. So, And if you're downwind from it, it smells like any other diesel engine, like a bus or truck. I could see him. He's turning on his motor and he sped it up and, and headed over to us. Well, that's fine. I mean, he was curious. I think I would, in the same situation, I would go over and see what it was that's kind of under his feet. Uh, but when he got right up next to me, strange thing happened. He opened up his coat. He had like an ankle-length coat uh, and a, some kind of ball cap on, and he didn't have anything on underneath. He flashed us. Can you imagine that? I got flashed by a sport fishing boat, and uh, I couldn't believe my eyes. I put the watch officer on, and he, he confirmed what I thought I saw or what I did see. And so I got in the intercom system on a sub, you know, and I said, this is the captain speaking, and uh, we've had a lot of traffic here. You can hear them through the hull, these big ships grinding in and out of L.A. Harbor. But let me tell you about what just happened to us. So I told him about getting flashed by this citizen in his sport boat. And then after a few minutes, he closed his coat and drove away. So in keeping with the spirit of uh, this month's uh, podcast, I thought I'd talk to you about parasites and submarine. Because human parasites are almost as deadly sometimes as uh, those that are dealt with in biology or entomology. And that is, they're things that attach to you and you can't get rid of them. And uh, we all know people like that. That's my uh, sea story for this month. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next month. this episode of the deep sea podcast as ever you can get in touch uh, you can find all our social media links below there is an email address ask us questions comments any sort of way you want to engage uh, we're a friendly bunch and we'll try our best to get back to you we have a few interesting things in the pipeline we're spinning a few plates at the moment but it's exciting so i think i maybe mentioned it on the last episode but we're working on a deco stop which will be a neurodivergency special so again deco stop is more about the scientists than the science if that makes sense it's more human orientated so we're going to talk about you know being neurodivergent within the field 
difficulties offshore, but also advantages as well. Um, there are advantages to thinking differently, especially as part of a team. So that is coming up in March, and we're really excited for that one. It's come together quite well. And we've started a newsletter, so you can sign up to that as well. It'll be in the show notes, or if you go to our website, a little bit of behind-the-scenes show stuff, a little bit of reminder of what's in there. And if you don't have time, even for the pressurized episode, it has links that will take you sort of directly to that part of the episode. So if you just want a little bit of Don, or you just want to hear from our guest, um, then you can follow those links and dive right in. But it gives you a little bit of a teaser what's in the episode and what we're up to. So please do sign up if you get the chance. And I think that's about it. So as ever, we'll deep see you next time. And I miss you already. If you would like to advertise with the Deep Sea Podcast, feel free to get in touch. Our audience is primarily young people with an interest in science, often undergraduates or people considering a degree in marine science, but it also includes established scientists. Feel free to get in touch if you're interested in reaching these groups. Do you think we finally try to pass off uh, a study that we don't actually fully understand and we've just been caught out by fumbling that something wrong. No, no, I think that's... No? Uh, that's think we nailed tough. it? No, I got it. Right, right. Yeah. No, Norwegians, eh? <laughs> Norwegians is a descriptive device. Yeah.